Welcome to A Ticket to Ride. This is a real, raw, uncensored look at the end of life through the eyes and heart of a hospice nurse. Confessionals, education, and normalizing death and dying, because let's face it, our society just doesn't talk about it. Welcome. I am so happy you're here. I have been so deeply called to create this space for you, for me, and for all the wonderful humans and memories I've made along this crazy journey of being a hospice nurse. My name is Alexis, and I grew up in Southern California. I'm 38 years old. I'm a mother, a wife, a friend, a nurse, a daughter, and a sister. This podcast is something I've dreamed of doing since the first year of doing this work. I've been a hospice nurse for eight years. Believe it or not, it's the only nursing I've done. I have kind of an interesting story that I want to share because I actually didn't know any nurses growing up. I was a hairdresser for 10 years and I had a pretty successful career. I set out to make all of these dreams come true and I did. I did hair behind a chair. I owned my own business. I did hair for LA Fashion Week. I had billboards with the hair that I did up all over Los Angeles. I had stuff in magazines, on commercials. And the reason why I'm I'm saying all of this is because never in a million years did I ever think I would do that and then become a nurse, let alone a hospice nurse. But there's actually a lot of similarities within the professions Um, People trust you. You're touching them. It's a very vulnerable thing. And I became a hairdresser because, number one, I didn't want to be told what to do. And number two, because I loved humans and I just wanted to be around people. And it's kind of the same thing with nursing. At 28 years old, I just felt like at the end of my day, you know, doing hair, I just felt unfulfilled. I felt like there was a void. So... I literally sat with myself and wrote down a list of qualities that I thought I had. Things like compassionate, empathetic to a default, um, a good listener, a hard worker, trustworthy. And then on the other side of the paper, I wrote all the professions I thought that, you know, went along with that. So it was nurse, teacher, firefighter, paramedic, etc. And... I just kept coming back to nurse and I thought there is no way that I'm smart enough to be a nurse. But then I'd be driving down the street and I'd see a billboard that said, do you want to become a nurse or enroll in nursing school today? And it was like, okay, universe, I'll listen. So I started researching schools and um, I went to actually a private school because I had no prerequisites at this point. I went from high school to beauty school, so I didn't have any college experience. I'll never forget I had an interview with the dean of the school before I actually committed to enroll. And, you know, I was totally transparent with her. I I told her I didn't know if I was going to be smart enough. I didn't know if this program really was for me. And I was feeling really self-conscious about the fact that, you know, I smoked a lot of pot in high school. I played sports. And other than that, I really didn't care too much about my studies and my grades. And and then I went, like I said, right into beauty school. So I remember she, 
you know, looked at me and she said, why do you want to become a nurse? And I said, honestly, because I'm in love with the human race and because I have so much empathy and compassion for people, I don't really know what to do with it. And I know I'm a hard worker and that's pretty much all I know. And she said, well, listen, I can teach you how to be a student, but I can't teach you how to feel compassion and empathy. And that was it. I signed the paperwork and I started that next month. So it was an accelerated program. All of my prereqs were in with the nursing program. So it was only a year long. And at the time I chose LVN school because it was, you know, less expensive and less of a time commitment rather than RN school. And I had no idea that, you know, I would be limited in jobs that I could find when I graduated. I loved my labor and delivery round. I was convinced that was what I was supposed to do was be an L&D nurse. And then I graduated school and it was like reality hit me in the face. And the only jobs that I could, I could apply to were a long-term skilled nursing facility, so a nursing home, or a doctor's office, or hospice. And, you know, I have so much respect for the men and women that work in long-term care facilities, but I just knew that it wasn't for me. And a doctor's office, I was so used to standing on my feet for over 12 hours a day, and no day ever being the same. And you know, I was looking forward to that part of nursing. So the third on the list was hospice. And the only thing I knew about hospice was that my grandma was on hospice. I didn't go see her. I was 21 years old and selfish. And I just thought, oh gosh, hospice, she's on hospice. That means she's dying. I don't want anything to do with that. And it's something I still regret to this day. So I got an interview And at this point, I was, you know, I think I was just turning 30. And I show up at this interview in Sherman Oaks, and it's this really small family-run company. And she's looking at my resume, which was so silly because it was like hair and then nursing school and then nothing. And she's kind of like, is this a joke? And I'm like how am I supposed to get hired anywhere if no one will give me a chance? I can't gain experience if no one will give me a chance. And, you know, she told me that she had a good feeling about me and that normally she doesn't hire anyone without experience, but she was going to take a chance. And still to this day, I'm so grateful for her because I don't know where I would be in my nursing career if she didn't take a chance. So Anna, thank you. That was so rad of you. And I worked my butt off. (laughs) I worked with some pretty great nurses and fortunately it was a small company, like I said. So the RNs were open to teaching and accepting me. And, you know, everybody says nurses eat their young, but I was lucky enough to not experience that. So You know, hospice is interesting because you don't ever really turn it off. Um, It's 24-7. 
you know, it's, you have on-call hours, you have your regular daytime shift hours, um, and also the emotional part and the physical part of it. In the early days, I remember this patient that really impacted me. So he lived in this back house. Uh, so we park out front, and she just kind of warns me that this is this might be a little bit of an intense visit. And it's like, what do I know? I don't I don't know what she means by that. So we go in, and he lives in like a shack um, back house in the middle of the valley, and he's on service for esophageal cancer. And again, I mean, I knew what that was as far as like what my books said it was when I studied in school, but I didn't know what it actually looked like on a person. So we walk in, there's no lights on. He didn't want to take any pain meds. He didn't want to eat or drink. He didn't want any of his friends or family to know he was dying. He didn't really want help from us. Our hands were tied. All we did was listen and respect his choice. We go out to the to our cars and I just looked at her and was like that's it that's all we're gonna do she's like what do you mean I'm like we're not gonna do anything more to help him and she said what do, what do you want to do and I said I don't know but his living situation and he's by himself and blah, 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 blah. I just started like spinning and she grabbed a hold of my arm and she said listen to me if you're going to continue to do this work and keep yourself healthy and grounded and sane, you have to know that you cannot take this man's disease process away. You can't take away the diagnosis. You can't, you know, buy him more time. You can't change the prognosis. But what you can do is one small positive thing to make his comfort and his quality of life a little bit better. I just got in my car and just shook my head and was like, I don't even know what just happened. And I was kind of mad and I was kind of mad at the system and just all of that. But then as I continued to do the work, I always heard her voice in the back of my mind because she was totally right. And I was so, I'm so thankful that she did that because I don't think I would still be doing this work if I wouldn't have been able to learn that super valuable lesson. Um, because it is a hard job. And as the hospice nurse, you have to keep yourself healthy. You have to pour into yourself. You have to stay grounded and connected to whatever you believe in. And for me, it's quality of life. I believe so strongly in quality of life. And I am so anti-human suffering that the only way I know how to be a part of it positively is to do this work. So like I said, I've learned to build a very strong boundary so that, you know, I don't take it home and I don't let it consume me. Although there are some cases that still do, um, you know, and 
I am codependent by nature. I think every single nurse that I've ever known has underlying codependent issues. It's like, well, if we're going to be codependent, we might as well get paid for it, right? So, um, so I lost a lot of sleep in the beginning, but I can say that, you know, now it's just, I truly feel like I've been chosen to be in that moment and it's an honor to share space with people in such a vulnerable time in their lives, whether it's the patient, whether it's the family members, it's, it's all of it. Um, so yeah, so I, I continued to do the work and it was always this elephant in the room because I had never seen a dead body before. And so You know, I was being told, hey, if someone died, the next person that dies, you're going to do the visit because you got to learn it. And I was just like the anticipation of building up to it was just almost torturous. So one morning I'm stuck on the freeway in traffic, as I was most mornings, and I get a call that someone had passed away. And the nurse said, whatever you do, don't eat the squash. So that was weird. But they gave me the address and I plug it into my phone and I head that way. And, you know, I I was shadowing people, but I never shadowed an actual death visit. So I remember calling my mom and just being like, what am I going to do? I don't even know what I'm doing, you know? And so I, I pull up to the house and I just take a deep breath and I basically am like, universe, give me some strength because I have no idea what I'm going to walk into. And, um, so I walk in and it's the patient. It was in her low nineties and she was, uh, living with her son who was caring for her. And he had said that she stopped breathing, you know, at like 6am and it was now like close to 10am. So I did know that, you know, as the hospice nurse, you go in and as soon as a loved one or a caregiver or whoever is, is with the patient, um, notices that their respirations have stopped, they call us right away. Uh, they don't call 911, um, because the patient is a, a do not resuscitate. So they call us first. And so we come out and we we do an assessment. And so we listen for a heartbeat. We feel for a pulse. Uh, we check to make sure there's no respirations. And, um, sometimes we pull back the eyelids to see if the eyes are dilated. Um, and so I know all this in my head, but it's totally different when you're in a home by yourself, you know, you have no doctor there. You have no other nurse. You can't look at your coworker and be like, Hey, help me out here. Or, Hey, am I doing this right? Or what would you do? Um, You're out on an island by yourself, basically. So the woman is in bed. She's totally naked. There's no covers on her. And she has a red rose laid on her chest. And it was so interesting because as soon as I saw her, I thought, wow, it's just totally a body. Like, I didn't feel any kind of presence in the room with me. Um, The sun kind of gave me some space, thank God for that, because I'm sure I was fumbling around. Um, So, you know, I was in the room, and I think the first thing I did was open the window because I felt like 
if this woman's soul was kind of floating around the room, then I wasn't going to invite it to like come home with me. Right. So I opened the window and, um, listened to it for a heartbeat, you know, blah, blah, blah. I did all those things, but you know, your mind kind of plays tricks on you because you're like, what if she still does have a slight heartbeat still, you know, I don't want to be the nurse that lets the mortuary come and, you know, they take the patient away and there's still a heartbeat. So sometimes your mind will play tricks on you when your stethoscope is up to someone and you're listening, but it was kind of apparent that she had passed away probably a long time before 6am because all the nurses that taught me what to do, they said, the first thing you want to do is put the head of the bed down so that the patient stays nice and flat for when the mortuary comes. Again, this is all just like so morbid to me at the time because I'm like, this is actually my job. Uh, now it's second nature, you know, but before it was like my first time doing this, I just felt like it was such an out of body experience, you know? Um, so I called the time of death, which is really like interesting because it, it feels like you have this power, um, of like, whoa, this is my responsibility of actually calling another human's time of death. So I put the head of the bed down and as the bed is going down, the patient is staying still. So the patient is stuck at a 30 degree angle and the bed is flat. Rigor mortis had fully set in and I couldn't believe it. (laughs) Um, I'm in this visit and I'm doing what I need to do. And I remove the Foley catheter and the son barges in the room and he says, nurse, nurse, please, whatever you do, don't get rid of the catheter bag. Please keep the urine in the catheter bag. And I was like, okay, normally you would drain it out or you would just throw the whole thing like in the trash. But he was like, I want you to put it in my sink. And I was like, okay. And he's like, that's what I use to water the garden is mother's urine from her catheter bag. And I kind of laughed because I assumed obviously he's joking And, um, he was not joking. That's what he does. And so I called the mortuary, the mortuary was on its way. And, um, sometimes nurses choose to stay during this time, but sometimes, you know, you don't have to, it just kind of depends on if the family needs extra support or they don't really want to be alone with their loved one who has passed away. Um, in this case, I did not stay, um, And so before I left, sure as shit, he comes out with a bag full of squash and a Coors original bottle with three red roses and told me I was an angel and thank you so much for my help. Have a good day. And I just took these gifts of gratitude (laughs) and I walked to my car and under my breath, I was like, what in the actual fuck have I gotten myself into? So here we are, eight years later. I have so much to share with you, and I'm so happy to be able to spread awareness and shine a light on quality of life, end of life, and what hospice truly means to me. I have so many stories to share, things to teach, 
people to interview, that this really only feels like the beginning. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. I can't wait until we meet again. Until then, I'm sending you peace.